0: Good morning, everyone. It's really good to see all of you, uh, to see all your faces. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Denzel. Uh, um, yeah, Hi, my name is Denzel. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah, you know that, don't you? Um, and we're continuing in our uh, series going through Luke. Uh, Luke uh, is about Jesus, humanity's only hope. Uh, and so hopefully we'll see some of that today and hopefully our, our hearts are prepared to hear God's word and that we would receive from him. Um, I'm going to read, we're, we're in Luke 21. Um, I'm actually going to read from Luke 20, verse 45. But um, our kind of focus is Luke 21, 1 to 19. So not the whole chapter, but just Luke 21, 1 to 19. But starting at chapter 20. Verse forty-five, and um, as we go through, feel f- as we go through, feel free to keep your Bibles open and to kind of track along with me, with the verses that I'm kind of talking about and you know, signposting. Um, I'll give us a moment and then I'll read. Cool. So Luke 20 from from verse forty-five. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up. And saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in, small, put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put, more than, has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be great terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my, for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. This is God's word, amen. Uh, Since becoming parents, uh, my wife Chloe and I have had to think about what we watch on TV as a family, right? Um, We we often can't watch uh, a lot of the shows that we would want to watch, they're too mature for our daughter, right? She's only four. Um, And even growing up, the TV shows I used to watch, uh, I probably shouldn't have watched. I don't know if any of you remember Trouble, uh, but I spent a lot of time watching Trouble. Trouble is a a TV channel with a lot of sitcoms, or was a TV channel with a lot of sitcoms. And uh, many of them were funny, but they weren't necessarily child-friendly. And so we've had to look for a new TV show to watch as a family. That's proper wholesome, right? Wholesome is the key word. And we found this one show, and this, this one show, no one talks about it, but it's sick, right? I'm telling you, it's sick, and it's called Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> 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 Chloe, Chloe suggested it one day, she suggested it one day, and I was like, nah, what are you talking about, Little House on the Prairie? And then I watched the first episode, and I was like, oh, this is good, this is good, I like it, I like it. <laughs> It's about a family that lives in the fields, they've got a house in the fields, and um, uh, uh, it's five of them, they've got the mum, the dad, they have uh, three daughters, and they have a family dog, right, I think the family dog's name is, is it Jasper, what's the, the, yeah, I don't know, Buster, something like that. And there's this one episode where there's a rabid raccoon that goes around, because it's kind of set in the 1800s, kind of like, I don't know, 1800s, early 1900s. Um, A rabid raccoon goes around killing their chickens, and it's causing mayhem, and then the trouble is, it bites the family dog, right? And other stuff happens as well, but the drama is that the family has to make a decision as to whether or not to keep the dog or to let the dog go, right? Because how many of you know that once a dog has rabies and once it has symptoms, uh, it's beyond help? Uh, No Amount of medical help, no amount of intervention can save it from the inevitable. It's, it's, it's past the point of no return. The, you know, that we, like once virus gets into the system, it's, it becomes incurable. And so, the, again, the drama is the only way to get rid of rabies is to destroy the dog. Right? That is to kill the dog and oftentimes to burn it. Because obviously, if, well, if, I mean, if you kill the dog and then the body's there, something else bites it and the rabies spreads. And so you have to kill the dog and you have to burn it. And so I won't spoil what happens in the episode because I know you're all dying to watch Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> but in this section, that's what the temple's like, right? The temple in Jerusalem was the most important, influential place in Jewish faith. It's the place where you go to meet God. But that place is beyond help. The temple was so infected with religion, corrupt religion, and it's gone so far from God that there's no intervention. There's no help that can redeem it. And here Jesus prophesies, that is, he predicts the future. He tells the future and says that the temple will be destroyed. God is done with it. He's finished with the temple. But just because God is done with the temple does not mean that God is done with us. And so, God will destroy the temple, but it's because he's building a new one. Verse 1 to 11, God will destroy the temple, but it's because he's building a new one. So we'll kind of go through in those two sections. So in the past chapters, we've seen that Jesus comes into Jerusalem the kind of the, you know the capital the headquarters of Israel and he enters as a new king and he has this distinct focus on the temple the temple was a place that was physically impressive right it was amazing it was decorated with gold and jewels and spiritually it was significant right it was the holy place where god dwells It was a place where sacrifices were made for sins. Um, To go into the temple in some real sense meant that you were moving closer to God, as it were. And the leaders of the temple who had to be in there, they were needed, right? They were important. They were integral. Without them, the temple can't function. They were there to protect its holiness. They were there to shepherd the people. They were there to teach the people and perform sacrifices. And so they were needed. But Jesus had a big problem with the temple. The leaders within it, the shepherds of the people, had become so savage and so corrupted that although they were seen as close to God by virtue of being in the temple, they couldn't be further away from him. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer that invited the nations to come and seek God. But if you went into the temple needing forgiveness, you'd walk into a room of you know, kleptomaniacs because everyone would try to you know, take your goods off you. There was extortionate prices if you wanted to come and enjoy the benefits of the temple. That's why Jesus calls it a den of thieves. The temple of God was a, was a place that was full of people who rejected and murdered those that God sends. God's temple of righteousness and goodness was full of crooked, shady people who knew how to get rid of you if you didn't fit within their system. Fun fact, in the, in the temple, there were two forms of prayer, right? One, the first kind is that they would pray on the weak and the poor and exploit them. And the second kind is that they would pray to God with many words, and it sounds good and it sounds spiritual, but it's really false and fake. The shepherds and the leaders, the heroes of the people entrusted with the care of God's people were immersed, they were steeped in deep evil. Savage, self-involved, deceptive, dangerous. That was the spiritual condition of the place where you would go to meet God. The place that ought to be a garden of spiritual life is a desert of spiritual death. And so the temple became a very impressive, a very gorgeous, a very beautiful cover-up for evil and deadness. The temple, or the people in the temple, appeared close to God by virtue of being in the temple but they had completely lost their sense of God and awareness of Him, and that's the context of the story of the poor widow, right? It's possible that the widow herself had been fleeced by the temple. Uh, you know, when it says in, in in chapter twenty, verse forty-seven, it says, "Devoured by widows, um, devour widows' houses." It refers to religious leaders who were experts in law. And they would use their, their knowledge of the law to, to, to defraud women who had just lost their husbands. And I'm sure listening to this, you know, maybe many of us have in our own experiences or at least have seen this kind of corruption. You know, we know about the so-called men of God who use God's truth to take advantage of vulnerable people in order to serve themselves. Whether they want fame, or they want money, or they want power. I mean, I I was thinking of examples, but genuinely there's too many to name. (laughs) It's, it's, it's It's wickedness. On the surface, these men of God, as it were, can present like they're close to God. But truly, they have no sense of God. They actually use God so that they can resist Him. When we see that, when we notice that, it's, it's obviously wrong to us. It's disgusting, we would call it. But what about us? Is it possible that we have in our own ways, or we have our own ways of looking okay with God on the surface, or maybe close to God, but really we have lost our sense of God. For some of us, we might stay close enough to God and the idea of church and the idea of God and we seem okay with him, but really we're not that open to God. We don't really want him to have a say in our lives. We're happy to give a portion of ourselves to him. But perhaps we really don't want that much to do with God. And you know, for some of us, it's easy to, to, you know, for that to be our reality and to hide that behind the fact that we show up to church every now and again. But really, we're not open to Him. For others of us, we may not really be open to God because we feel like we don't really have to be. We're doing all right. Life is fine. Work is fine. God is that nice add-on, right? He's a nice idea. But really, we resist him. For some of us, we might resist God because for us, life has been hard and we struggle and we sometimes believe that God hasn't been there for us. And so we kind of close ourselves off from him. It's possible that the widow was a victim of the temple's extortion, and she's left with nothing. Yet she still comes and gives everything that she has. And so the point here is that although the widow is poor, it's the religious leaders who are the ones who are bankrupt. and jesus gives us the eyes of heaven to see that real faith is not about show it's not about looking close to god but it's about an honest and open opening up to opening up to god genuinely with our weakness and our poverty that is where god dwells forget the temple God's favorite place to show up is when we are open and poor before him. That's because God doesn't actually want much from you, because he wants you. So let's be open to God. Let's be open to Jesus. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It doesn't say blessed are the rich in spirit, right? And so for those of us who think we're doing fine, for those of us uh, uh, you know, who think that our lives are okay, or yeah, we think they're okay, um, or how good our finances are, without opening up to Jesus, uh, you will be spiritually bankrupt. And so let's open up to him. Uh, from verse 5 onwards. After this, uh, some are gazing at the temple. They're amazed by how wonderful it looks. And uh, I guess in reality, it would have been a, like, you know, quite a magnificent temple. Right? It's covered in huge stones. It's got white marble on it. Uh, uh, the designs are, you know, it's got plates of gold. It's got inscriptions on the wall. Um, the gold would reflect the sun and it would be dazzling. Everyone would just love it, right? Um, it was one of the wonders of the world, the temple, and it's interesting because, you know, we see uh, tall skyscrapers all the time. You go to London Bridge, you see the Shard or you see the Gherkin. Um, and, 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 and those are amazing buildings, but you wouldn't call them, you wouldn't describe it as glorious. But the temple was glorious, that when you saw it, you'd be, you'd be blown away. But again, it's not just the architecture, it's the spiritual weight of the temple. It's the holy place. It's where the unapproachable God comes down to hear our prayers and accept our sacrifices. It's special. In the old in the Old Testament, the like you know the temple was was the place where the you know the presence of the Lord, the Shekinah glory appears, and so they're kind of standing there adoring it. Whoa, this is this is nice. Yeah, yeah, give me some more. And then Jesus taps them on the shoulder and is like, "Check this, right? A day is coming when this glorious building that you see." Will be destroyed, and it will be destroyed to the point that not one stone will be left on top of the other, right? Not one brick will be on top of another brick. It will be completely leveled. And like Pastor E says, uh, uh, I think he said a couple of weeks ago, he says when Jesus talks, he doesn't miss. Right? Forty years after that moment, within a generation, the temple was completely destroyed in 70 A.D. by Titus Vespasian. Uh, um, He was a Roman emperor. And you know, know, one thing we should get straight is that Jesus, Jesus isn't just kind of another nice moral teacher, just teaching kindness and happiness like a hippie, you know? Jesus is the greatest prophet ever, right? Often we, you know, look at his teachings, we look at his miracles as compelling, and they are. But what is one of the most striking and most compelling evidences of the truth for Christian faith is that Jesus' prophecies were fulfilled with pinpoint accuracy. And he says there in verse, 20, in verse 32, he says, This generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And that's exactly what happens. What makes this striking is that for those who heard him, it would have been unthinkable that such a glorious building could be destroyed because it was so impressive and because it was the place of God. Right, this is the place where heaven meets earth. But that's no longer the case. Without a true sense of of the reality of God in the hearts of the people, the temple morphed from a place where you meet God into a trophy of human power and savageness and corruption and oppressive religion and God will not be associated with that. Um, Richie said to me last week that, that at this point for the temple, it's as though God disconnected the phone from his end, and he's no longer there. The spiritual state of the temple of, of temporal religion is so beyond help that even when God himself enters into the temple, when Jesus when God comes to the temple, not only do they want to, or not only do they not recognize God, but they want to kill him. The temple literally has become good for nothing, it only produces evil. It's like salt that has lost its taste. And what does Jesus say about salt that lost its taste? His taste. He says, Salt that lost its taste is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet and that's exactly what happens now you know a question for us to think about is you know how do we think uh, god think like, you know what do we think god feels about that um, is that good news to god is god thinking yeah i'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get them does god find joy in the destruction and judgment no, right? It breaks his heart. Over and over throughout the scripture, you know, God is pleading with people who don't turn to him. People who resist him, resist him and, you know, say, he's like, listen to me, please. Don't go the way that leads to destruction. In Isaiah 1, uh, 18 to 20, you have God saying, he says, he says, come now, let us reason together. He's like, let's, let's sit down and talk about this before you go any further. Let's sit down and talk before this gets any worse. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. That's him saying, I can right all the wrongs that you've done. Amen. But he says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Right? He's offering them life. But then I imagine with a kind of pain in his heart, he says, But if you refuse and if you rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. God does not think this is fun. Jesus, who shows us that God is not just an idea, that God is not just a theory, but that he's a person, he confirms this. He confirms the heart of God when he weeps in chapter 19 over Jerusalem. This doesn't make God happy, right? You know, God cries at the thought of destruction and judgment. Yet there's a sense in which this destruction is necessary, and in it there is real hope. The destruction of the temple is a sign... That there is a day when God will break down every kind of abusive, unjust, false human religion. Amen. Everyone talks about these days. They're going through a deconstruction phase, right? They're deconstructing what they believe, you've got to break it down in order to build it up. Yeah? Fine. That's that's all fine and cool. But God will have his time of deconstruction too. God himself will deconstruct and dismantle everything that gets in the way of God, even the temple. He will bring down all of the superficial human greatness and human magnificence that raises itself against God and preys on the weak, and he will break it down brick by brick. Jesus hates that kind of evil religion. And the good news is that he will do something about it. And it will be something. And it begins with the destruction of the temple. In verse 7, the disciples ask, what will be the sign? What is going to show us that this is happening? Uh, And before he answers, because he gives an answer in verse 20, which we'll look at next week, he prepares them and he encourages them. So from verse 8 onwards, the destruction of the temple will be so unsettling, it will be so unsettling to the current state of affairs, and it will cause such a frenzy that people will interpret it as the end of, the time, at the, at the end of time, right? And then, you know, you'll have cults that start appearing, and people start saying, I'm Jesus, and I'm the Messiah, and you've got people shouting in the streets saying, oh, the time is coming. And Jesus says, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. <laughs> Jesus cares that we're not swept away by hysteria and by conspiracy theories. Right? It's, it's, it, you know, it's easy to be curious and it's easy to fall confused and even afraid around, um, of, you know, about the things that unsettle us. But Jesus prepares us. He encourages us. And he says, I've got you, just keep your head, don't be afraid, trust in my word, all right? And that's instructive for us, because we live in interesting times, right? It always feels like the end. But the truth is, no one knows the end. You know, no matter how many you know, historical links people can make, you, got, you, know, you know on the walls where people do the, they've got a picture there, a picture there, and all of that. No matter how many historical links people can make or if they can read the stars or whether they had a dream and God gave them a date, right? July 17th, 1985, God is coming and I'm still here, you know? (laughs) Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour. All we are called to do is to keep a cool head. And trust Jesus. That's what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to keep a cool head and trust in him. Not in the news. Not on YouTube. Not on not Facebook. Right? That's a word for someone out there. Tell them, come on. <laughs> there is real evil out there. And it's troubling. But trust that God has given you. More than enough in his word to navigate this world, not with a loser mentality, not with defeatism, but with actual hope and actual confidence that the future, for, for us as believers, the future is bright. It's exciting. And we can draw confidence from verse 9. Right, Jesus tells them what's going to happen. But notice he says, do not be afraid or do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Now that doesn't sound like someone who doesn't know what's going on, right? That sounds like someone who knows exactly what's going on, that Jesus knows the end from the beginning. You know, for us, we we understand time through a sequence of events. Right? We are blind to the next moment. We're, we're blind to the end of how the sermon is going to end. We're blind to whether or not we'll, you know, we'll make it at home. We're blind. So we see, we see time in a linear fashion, in a straight line. right? But God doesn't see time that way. You know, history is, is right in front of him. It's like a panoramic view just there in front of him. Again, we see, we're blind, and we are there at the next moment, and we're blind to the next moment. We're kind of walking constant blindness. We don't know what's going to happen next. But for God, history is in front of him. And the, the good news for us is that God isn't kind of you know, sat back just watching it, hoping that someone will do something to make stuff better. Right? History and our lives, our you know, history on a big scale, but our lives as personal stories, are all being guided by God. Again, we cannot know the future. The future and everything that we worry about is, is out of our hands, but it's not out of control. When it feels like the world is messy and scary and we fear for our children and we fear for our own lives, we need to look with the eyes of faith And see that behind all that's going on, the risen Christ, who is faithful and sovereign, stands at every minute, at every hour, every day, every season, with all things firmly under his authority and care. And in that, we are free to not surrender ourselves to fear and to anxiety and to obsession with knowing everything. And trying to control everything. Because all things are completely within and under the control of God's hand. You know, that doesn't make life easy. But But it is the assurance that our lives are never beyond the control and care of God. No matter what we're facing, no matter what we're seeing in the news... Nothing is out of the, con- the control and the care of God. And again, that's not easy to ingest or to believe. We might agree with it, but we don't necessarily believe it. Because you have Jesus in verse 10 and 11 saying there's going to be wars and earthquakes and famines and plagues and terrors. Right? Jesus doesn't mince his words, does he? And you know, in that, in that verse, I, don't, I, I suggest that... Uh, It doesn't refer to a one-time occurrence where you can say, look, an earthquake happened here, a war happened here, look, it's the end. Uh, But rather, these things happen as repeated cycles throughout human history as God redeems the world. But Jesus prepares his people. Sorry, people stuck together. Yet when we see things like the wars and the earthquakes and so on, that is not our opportunity to fear or to panic. It's a time to find shelter in Jesus. In Psalm 46, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth gives way, right, that's an earthquake. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, right, that's the nation rising against nation. He utters his voice, the earth melts, but the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And this is the key in verse 9. Be still and know that I am God. And I will be exalted among the nations. Right? That's not a, a maybe. He says, I will be. That is a promise. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We don't know what the future holds, but indeed we know the one who holds the future, Amen. and in that there is comfort and confidence that we can have. That's verse ten to eleven. Uh, moving on to verse twelve. Now, in Luke, in Luke five, Jesus says, "No one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled." The skins will be destroyed. Which is to say, you cannot fit the newness that God is bringing into old religion. Our way, that's me and you, our way of reaching God and being good people is old and stale. And it cannot truly transform us. It cannot truly open our hearts to God. The very best of our human goodness only produces shadiness and disappointment, as shown by the temple. But God is able to do something new. And if verses one to eleven show us that God will destroy the temple, then I suggest that in verses twelve to nineteen, it's because He's building a new one. And it's interesting because when you when you look at those verses, it looks like the opposite is happening. Jesus prepares his people because persecution is going to come. And it's interesting, persecution comes specifically because they are following the way of Jesus. He says twice for my namesake in verses 12 and verses 17. Persecution comes because you follow Jesus. Again, our world is so far from God that not only does it not recognize him, if it could get its hands on him, it would kill him. That's the language of our times, right? Everyone's saying God is dead. That's not accidental. God is not what we would expect him to be. And for that, many hate him. God's truth is so offensive to us It's so offensive to our normal ways of thinking. His truth is too confrontational because it it exposes the real us. It exposes that we resist God to the point that if we could, we would attack him. It's an interesting thought. That's why Jesus was killed. God came to us and we killed him. And that's what persecution is. And this is what they and we, unfortunately, slash fortunately, will face. If we follow Jesus, it's not a smooth road. You don't get a high five from the world. Yet Jesus will be with them. He says in verse 15, I will give you a mouth and wisdom. He promises that he will give them every word they need so that they don't have to prepare. And in that, the good news of the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom spreads. And here again, Jesus is the greatest prophet of all time. Because this happened in real time. It happened in the book of Acts. Yet the disciples are called to follow the way of Jesus. And look closely at that text, right? Because you see that they suffered just or or Jesus predicts that they're going to suffer just like how he suffers, right? So verse 12, they will lay hands on you, but first they laid hands on Jesus. He says, they will bring you before kings and governors. Jesus himself stood before and bore witness before Herod and Pontius Pilate, a king and a governor. Verse 16, you will be delivered up by parents, brothers, and friends. We see Judas, one of his closest disciples, his closest friends, betrayed him with a kiss. Verse 17, you will be hated by all. You know, in Matthew 27, the people are so um, drenched in hatred of Jesus that they say, his blood be upon us and our children. That's how much they hated Jesus. In verse 16, it says, some of you they will put to death. Jesus was put to death. But something interesting happens in verse 17 to 19. Just like Jesus, they will suffer. But just like Jesus, who rose from death, they will not ultimately see corruption. Because through death and destruction, God somehow ushers in something new. God builds a new temple. How? Well, I think the answer is in the previous chapter, right? Jesus says in the previous chapter, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The leaders of the temple killed Jesus. They rejected Jesus as their leader. Yet upon Jesus, God builds a new temple. God is no longer associated with physical temple buildings. There is a new place where you can go to meet God. And it's in Jesus Christ. If there is anywhere in this world, in this universe, that you need to go to meet God, to find God, to commune with God, to find forgiveness with God, it's in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to God. No one can approach God except through him. Jesus is the new and true temple. Jesus is everything the temple was pointing to. He is where the fullness of God dwells. In the temple you have God coming down. The fullness of God coming down to be with his people. And that is what Jesus is. It's only in Jesus as humanity's only hope where anyone can meet God and have fellowship with Him. There no longer needs to be a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. There no longer needs to be a Hajj to Mecca. Jesus Christ is the place where we go to meet God. If we want to worship God, to know Him, to speak with Him, We do it all through Jesus Christ, which is why we pray in Jesus' name. And in Jesus, there is no corruption, and there never will be. There is no savageness, and there never will be. There is no deception. There is no spiritual deadness. But in Jesus, there is only life and the love of God that is ready to embrace us and to accept us and to bring us, to, to transport us to God. But there's more. In Ephesians 2, 18 to 22, it says, For through him, that is through Jesus, we have access to God. We have access in one spirit to the Father. We are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household. That is the temple of God built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets who went the way of Christ with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into the holy temple of the Lord. In Him, that is in Jesus, you also are built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Indeed, Jesus is the temple of God. But now God has made us His temple. No matter how messed up we are, when we open up to Jesus in faith, God comes to us. God doesn't tell us, clean yourself up and go to a building. God does what every other human way, what every other human way to salvation could not do. Right? Every, every other way of human salvation tries to ascend to God. It tries to find something to, to go through in order to get to God. But God himself descends to us, and God draws near to us. We try to go up to God, God comes down to us, and he takes his residence in us, right? God isn't just like, he doesn't just come down and exist in a a way outside of us, but he comes down and then comes inside us. God takes his residence in us, he cleans us up from the inside out. Again, every way tells you, clean yourself up from the outside in. Um, Shave your hair or whatever, I don't know. (laughs) Kneel on the floor. Wear a certain amount of clothes and you'll be holy. And it never works. We try to fix our corruption from the outside. But God comes in. He comes into us. And transforms our corruption. He transforms our hypocrisy. He transforms our show, our shadiness, and he breathes life into our spiritual deadness. The temple was beyond saving, right? It had rabies. You couldn't save it. There's no you, you can't help the temple, but you are not. If you think that you are beyond the help of God, that is untrue. Amen. Amen. Jesus says in, 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 in John 14, if anyone loves me, that is if anyone will open up to me, he will, and, and he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home in him. God's temple presence, God's Shekinah glory, friends, is among us here today, and it's in you. God's temple presence is now fulfilled in his Holy Spirit, in the hearts of his church, that's you and me. And we may not notice it, but if we look around, we are looking at the living, magnificent, Stones of the temple of God. We're looking at the gold, at the inscription, at the marvelous stones. When we talk to each other after church and fellowship and laugh and hug, it's like stones hugging each other. (laughs) And these stones will last forever. The temple was destroyed. This world will be destroyed. God at one point is going to burn it with fire. But we will see each other as living stones that last forever. And we shall not see corruption. No matter what our struggles, no matter what persecution we face, ultimately we shall not see corruption. We are the place now where God dwells. And so let's not close ourselves from God. But let's open up the doors of our hearts that God might enter in and that we might trust Him anew and afresh. We can trust Him with our whole selves. We can trust Him with our doubts and our mistakes. We can trust Him with our future and the future of this world. Our future is bright, it's not dim. Don't believe the lies, don't believe the conspiracies. We can trust God again because He is truly good. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, thank you that you have, through Christ, made your home in us. Would we live with that reality? And would we open up to you? For those of us who would appear close to you, but really we're far from you. Revere in us if there is any evil way. And come into us and make your home in us, we pray. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.